Bookcraft is pleased to present Ascent and Transfiguration by Dr. Truman G. Madsen from the series Jesus of Nazareth. Ascent and Transfiguration. What happened on the Mount of Transfiguration? We begin by backtracking to Caesarea Philippi, where six days before, according to Mark, and eight days before, according to Luke, the apostles were met with Jesus. And this is the occasion when the question is asked, whom do men say that I am? And after some response, the question is then asked by Jesus, but whom do ye say that I am? And that's the moment of Peter's famous declaration and confession. Thou art the Christ, the anointed one. In Hebrew, he would have said, Thou art Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. Now, within a week, three men only, Peter, James, and John, come with Jesus and they climb to a mountain, quote, set apart, and high mountain apart, to quote Mark exactly in chapter 9. Scholars differ on whether the most likely site is Mount Hermon, the highest mountain in the Middle East, over 8,000 feet, or Mount Tabor or Tavor, which is uh, only 1,300 above the level plain. In either case, we have from many sources clarification on what happened on that occasion. First, why did they withdraw to a mountain at all? We know at least three reasons. The text says that they went to be in seclusion, and precisely that is the advantage of a high place. But second, we are aware according to Dr. Hugh Nibley, that in all religious traditions, high mountains are associated with theophanies, that is, with coming closer to God. In Israel at the time of Jesus, the two great holy mountains were Mount Sinai in the south and Mount Zion, close to where by now the second temple had been built. It may be that from Jesus' point of view, having grown up as he did in Nazareth and having been able to see from the high mountain of Nazareth, both northward to Hermon and southeast to Tabor, that familiarity led him to these places. In any case, they came and as they ascended, the closeness of their relationship, the thinness of the air, and symbolically at least, the thinness of the veil increased. We're taught from our own scriptures that probably this occurred late in the day and that they were together for the night. The season of the year was, according to at least one estimate, the fall, that is, probably close to October. And if so, 
they were in the season of the famous Feast of Tabernacles, which, according to Josephus, was the most glorious of all the festivals. This is called Sukkot, and it means the Feast of Huts, and it had become, by the time of Jesus, a celebration of pilgrims who came to Jerusalem and built huts, or as we would say, tents, near the Temple Mount. And the Orthodox uh, view is that today, and uh, perhaps then, one is to stay within this hut, live within it, for the period of the week of the holiday, and at minimum to take his meals there. We know from a sequel incident that Jesus was fasting and praying. So this would not have been a place to eat. But the evidence is that because they were there together, and apparently the three drowsy, the possibility of sleeping in such a booth was real. I add one other point about Peter. We read from another source, apocryphal source, that he only of the three was privileged to witness the ministrations of the personages who appeared. But in his own account, he says, we have, and proceeds, suggesting that all three were so privileged. We're also aware from the text that the disciples were confused and at one point sore afraid. And that leads us now to Jesus' own experience. Only a week before, he had announced his intent to bestow upon Peter and the rest of the twelve what he called the keys of the kingdom. And that's the context of the statement, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, as it were, that promise is being fulfilled. But earlier, he had himself explained or tried to, that, and this for the first time, that he was going to go up to Jerusalem, that he would face betrayal and death. And it was in that setting that Peter cried out, Oh no, no, that is not what you must face. No, that is beneath you. And that may be an echo of the faith in messianic prophecies, which spoke of the Messiah as a king and conqueror. And the idea of submission was as yet not really clear to the apostles. But now Jesus has witnesses who will teach that he indeed must go to Jerusalem and face death. The exact language in our text is that they spake, they being Moses and Elias, of his decease which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. But we add to that, based upon Joseph Smith's translation, they spoke of his death and also his resurrection, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. 
So these brethren are reassured of the outcome. But related to that is the recognition that three, not two, descended on that occasion. We know that Moses, Moshe, was present. We know that Elijah was present. Our own sources add that John the Baptist, according to the inspired version of Mark 9, there appeared unto them Elias with Moses, or in other words, John the Baptist and Moses. We know that John the Baptist was an Elias, or forerunner. We also know that he had given his life and been beheaded. The two earlier prophets were, according to our sources, translated personages. They had not yet tasted death. But John had, and could have been present, therefore, as a disembodied spirit. The other two were capacitated, by Joseph Smith's reckoning, to transmit keys. This would mean tangible laying on of hands and transmission. So just as Peter had said at Caesarea Philippi, Thou art the Christ, a voice now spoke from on high, saying, in effect, You're right. He is. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. In the Greek, the statement comes close to, This is my beloved or chosen one. The only instance in the New Testament where that exact word is used. And modern revelation makes it clear that there is a distinction between being called and being chosen. Jesus by now was on the crest of the final wave of his life and was facing his greatest trial. And so we can read between the lines, there was strength and comfort and reassurance for him as well as for his disciples. Consider now the feelings of a Moses and an Elias and a John. Moses had given 40 years to the leadership of Israel, and then standing on Mount Nebo and looking across to the chosen land, was told he would not lead them. The standard reading of that denial is that Moses had by his own acts become unworthy of his people, and that Joshua, therefore, was called. The fact is that our modern scriptures reverse that reading. For we read that Moses tried for those many years to encourage and lead the children of Israel with him up to the mount for they had been so invited. Moses had the keys of the Melchizedek priesthood and had been privileged to not only hear the voice and witness the giving of the commandments, but had been given face-to-face -face communion with the living God. Now, says our scripture, because the children of Israel hardened their hearts, 
and said, in effect, you, Moses, you go up. We will remain down here. The Lord swore that they would not enter into his rest while in the wilderness. And, quoting exactly, he took Moses out of their midst and the holy priesthood also. And that exactly inverts the tradition. They became unworthy of him. And so Joshua, with the lesser priesthood, led the children of Israel into the promised land. And that priesthood continued down to the time of John, John the Immerser, as he is called, who was, we read, filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb. Now Moses is on a mount with the Redeemer whom his entire life had been given to and with others who were worthy. As for Elijah, within clear vision of Mount Tabor is Mount Carmel. And Elijah, Eliyahu, the great and powerful prophet of the Old Testament, there had his confrontation with the priests of Baal and was triumphant and called down water from on high. But that same Elijah had to flee and travel southward and had ascended to refuge on Mount Horeb. Elijah is mentioned in the last promise of the ancient canon as the prophet who will somehow, someday, turn hearts to hearts, hearts of the children to the fathers, hearts of the fathers to the children. His very name is a combination of El, meaning God, and Yah, which we read to refer at least sometimes to the Son, as if his very name was given him in the expectation that he would bring father and son together. Well, he is on the mount, and he symbolizes the prophets as Moses symbolizes the great lawgiver and the great law of the past. Now, some scholars believe that on this occasion, the entire point of the presence or seeming presence of the ancients was to make it clear to the apostles that he, Jesus, was replacing those who had gone before. We understand that they transmitted keys to the brethren and that their very presence, along with that of John, the faithful John, was preparation for eventual Gethsemane and Golgotha. We further know from modern revelation that on that occasion not only were the countenances changed and the raiment white and glittering and the presence or sense of a divine cloud, all these associated with theophany, but we know that the earth itself was envisioned in its transfigured state. This appears nowhere in the New Testament, but we have an insight from the Doctrine and Covenants, which says, the day shall come 
when ye shall receive an inheritance upon the earth when the day of transfiguration shall come when the earth shall be transfigured even according to the pattern which was shown unto mine apostles upon the mount and it adds of which account the fullness ye have not yet received the earth itself is to become a paradisiacal place and on that occasion not only the Christ but his apostles were privileged in a prophetic vision to so see it we are somewhat alone in the world's religions in teaching that the earth is not simply a launching pad as it were of man's eventual redemption and exaltation the earth is to become the heavenly sanctuary to which our whole quest is pointed the earth will share and reflect the very exaltation of the family of mankind we're taught that in fact it is a type of human life that the earth was as we were created spiritually before it was created temporally that it has been baptized with water that it will eventually be baptized in fire and the Holy Spirit and that it will die be resurrected glorified and eventually as the prophet puts it rolled back into the presence of God it follows that our message and our goal is not to escape the earth but to transform it and in this surely Peter James of John would have been encouraged by their own heritage which teaches that the earth should be treated by every man as if it were made for that man alone and that as if his own acts could either destroy the earth or save the earth the earth fills the measure of its creation that message was clear that night on the Mount of Transfiguration now we ask next what was involved in the prophetic statements made to the three who we now can infer were not only the three trusted apostles but they were at that stage the three presiding high priests they were now in effect the first presidency of the primitive New Testament church Peter refers to his experience so also indirectly does John we have nothing of James but Peter so describes it he says we have a more sure word of prophecy whereunto you do well to take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place we were eyewitnesses of his majesty and heard the voice of his excellent glory in modern revelation 
that exact phrase, the more sure word of prophecy, is referred to and in the earliest editions of the Doctrine and Covenants with a bracket. The bracket says, spoken of by Peter. Bracket. And then it goes on to explain that such a word is prophetic of one's being sealed up to eternal life. This is sacred ground. But we know from the comments of the prophet Joseph Smith that it was sure. He asks in a sermon, what could be more sure? When he was transfigured, referring to Jesus, when he was transfigured on the mount, what could be more sure to them?